I figure we can start uh, just by sort of going down the line. We'll start with you, Lauren. Um, talk about a few of the decisions or inflection points along your career to reach being Solicitor General in D.C. and maybe sort of some of the considerations you were holding in your head along the way, some of the options you were considering, you know, sort of starting from a, a young age and moving forward. But I know that's a lot, but just sort of to a brief summary. Sure. Well, it all started on a summer's day in June. No. Um, so a lot of it was, I think, stumbling and serendipity. Uh, I um, came to Georgetown and Washington, D.C. for law school. Um, after I graduated, I clerked on the Federal District Court and then on the Third Circuit, um, and then went to do a fellowship at the SG's office at the Justice Department, where I got to work with Toby. Um, and from there, I went into private practice for a couple of years and got an email one day from a very conservative friend of mine who was the then deputy SG in West Virginia who said, if I were liberal, I would like this job. And it was a job posting for the deputy SG position in D.C. Uh, and so at the time, it was kind of middle to the end of the Obama term. I was looking at some federal options, um, and I was choosing between like going back to the Department of Justice, um, going into like a GC role at an agency, and then this position. Um, and kind of after thinking about it a lot and talking about it a lot with various sort of people that knew the office, knew the then AG, knew you know the courts in which we primarily practice, um, the SG's office in DC just seemed like the perfect fit for what I was looking for because it was you know primarily litigation, which is what I wanted to do, but it also had some interesting policy um, and oversight conversation type roles, which I wanted. And what I was looking at at Justice was either a purely litigation position or a pure policy position. And at the agencies, um, there's some litigation, but it's a lot of policy. Uh, and so given that I wanted to do mainly litigation, but also a bit of policy, this was like the right mix for me. Um, so I started in the SG's office uh, five years ago um, and uh, became the SG a year ago. Uh, and so in the time that I've been in the office, uh, when I first was hired, it was by an AG who was our last appointed AG. Um, so in 2010, the D.C. Council passed a law making our AG an elected position, and that went into effect um, in 2016. And so um, we now have AG Racine, who is our first elected AG. And so I now have seen the appointed model and the elected model, and I think we're going to talk a bit about the differences between the two. Um, but it's been a very satisfying um, five years. Uh, I, I guess something about our office that might differ from theirs is, you know, D.C. is this sort of strange city-state seat of the federal government hybrid. And so, you know, our office has about 500 appeals at any given time, um, primarily in the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is our state Supreme Court, um, and then in the D.C. Circuit. We also have some work in the Fourth Circuit and the Supreme Court and in various district courts. Um, but, you know, we handle, like, the biggest of the big, from, like, you know, the Second Amendment and Heller-type cases to the I put my trash out on the wrong day and got a fine, and I think that's wrong and I'm going to appeal it all the way through to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, and so, you know, there are days when you're working on, like, a really amazing amicus brief or a good merits brief in the Supreme Court, and then there are the days when you're dealing literally with, like, a $200 trash fine with someone who, you know, probably has a law degree and is retired and is really cranky and is going to, like, take this to the top. Um, so it's a really interesting mix of work in that way because you get, uh, you know, every decision, even, like, the small little cases, whether it's the zoning cases or workers' compensation cases, really affect people and their lives every day. Um, and so I think I like that mix, and I also like that big and small, that you can really see the, the results of uh, the work that you do. Cool. Yeah, I'll go next. Uh, so I'm Ryan Park. I'm one of two deputies in North Carolina. 
and I've been there for about a year and a half, now closer, closer to two years, I guess now. And I came in with a, a newly elected attorney general, uh, Josh Stein. Uh, uh, and uh, before that, I, I, well, I guess I, I could start. I went to Harvard Law School and then clerked. Um, and uh, then I was at, actually at the State Department. And that was my dream job in law school, to work at the State Department. I wanted to be an inter- international lawyer. And, uh, you know, it, it's a wonderful office, uh, the Office of Legal Advisor. But I realized when I was there that that's not actually the type of law I wanted to be practicing. And so I, I guess if there's any insight there is to not be afraid of the revealed preference because I spent probably five years, my most of my legal uh, you know, time thinking um, from the point that I entered law school to the time that I realized I didn't, I didn't like it there, <laughs> thinking that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And then, uh, so then I took a turn uh, and uh, I went uh, to a law firm in D.C. Uh, at Boy Schiller and then uh, after uh, the 2016 election, uh, I moved down to North Carolina. And um, I, uh, the the new attorney general is wonderful, and I was really inspired by him, and we wanted to uh, move uh, to North Carolina, and so it really uh, worked out uh, that I was able to get this job. Uh, and, yeah, it's uh, it's been really exciting and interesting. It's, the I think, largely similar to, uh, 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 you know, previous kind of explanations about what the job <laughs> entails. It's, it's a mix of uh, really heady, uh, amazing uh, appellate law that you kind of dream of when you're in law school uh, and thinking, oh, it'd be great to be an appellate lawyer. And a lot of, um, uh, you know, the everyday uh, appeals that keep uh, the system of justice rolling. Uh, and so it's, it's been great to get a mix. And uh, I think the best uh, reason uh, that uh, I can give for coming down and, and uh, going to state government is it's just been uh, wonderful getting a lot of opportunities to do things that I wouldn't uh, otherwise uh, have been able to do in terms of argument experience and um, being a principal on major cases. Uh, so it's been great. Uh, so I've realized I think that the fact that I have my current job is entirely the function of two very fluky events. Uh, so one happened the fall after I graduated from law school. So you're, this may come out during this discussion. Lauren and I's careers have a bunch of weird parallels. Um, I've been following Toby around. Um, and so, and they both, they actually both, in, these two things both involve places that we both worked. So I, um, I got my Court of Appeals clerkship during the fall of my 2L year because the, the clerkship cycle is, you know, this boom-bust cycle where um, there's sanity, then it gets less and less and less sane, then it gets completely insane. So when I was in law school, was near the peak of insanity. So I got my Court of Appeals clerkship in the fall of my 2L year. Um, so then I spent a year and a half knowing what I was going to do when I graduated from law school. But then I got to that clerkship, and I was sitting there in the fall going – well, what am I doing next year, right? I've had, for the last two years, I knew what I was doing next year. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what I'm doing next year, which was a little bit strange. Um, and so I thought about a whole lot of things. Um, I actually came very close to applying for a clerkship with the district judge that Lauren clerked for. And in many ways, I wish I had done that job because it would have been absolutely amazing. Um, but the reason, in part, that I didn't was because one day while I was sitting in the chambers of my Court of Appeals clerkship, I got literally a brochure, a physical brochure for this fellowship at DOJ, which, because I was an idiot, 
I did not know existed. Oh, me neither. I did not know that. So this is the Bristow Fellowship uh, at the U.S. Solicitor General's office, which I literally found out about from a brochure that was sent to the chambers of my court of appeals judge while I was clerking. Um, and so I applied for that. I applied for a few of other things, and I got I got that job. And I think I think I would not have become really intensely interested in being a government appellate litigator had I not applied for and gotten that job. That's one. Um, the other story to how I ended up having my current job was about two years ago. Um, it was just sort of like, what am I going to do next with my life kind of thing. And so I actually called in a whole bunch of favors to friends that I have in D.C. and sort of former mentors of mine. And one of them was a person that uh, Lauren and I worked with at O'Melveny and Myers. Um, and as I'm literally following Walter around the office while he's distractedly saying like a gazillion things to me, some of which I have no idea what he's talking about, this is just seared into my memory. At one point, Walter just literally turned to me and said, I think you should be the Solicitor General of Virginia. Like, literally, he said it. He's the first person who said it. And I will say, let the record reflect, that my answer to him was, does Virginia have a solicitor general? (laughs) And he said, your first assignment is to find out whether Virginia currently has a solicitor general. I swear to God, that absolutely happened, and it was the first person who did it. You know, I will say, to the extent there's a lesson there... I mean, to knit aspects of Lauren's story and my story together, and I guess, Ryan, I'd be interested to hear how you found out about your current job. I mean, virtually all of the sort of best, most interesting opportunities I have gotten have been from someone that I knew from some point earlier in my career where a person just randomly says the equivalent of, this doesn't sound like it's good for me, but who knows, maybe you'd be interested. Um, And so keeping in touch with people is really, really useful. And making sure, not just keeping in touch with them, but making sure that they have a sense that this is, right, the friend didn't just forward it to her randomly. The friend said, this might be something that you might be interested in because I know enough about the things that you're interested in to know that this might be the sort of thing that you might be interested in. Um, So I think that's a really important part of it. Um, You know, it sounds like, my guess is, all, and we can talk more about this later, I mean, I imagine all of our offices are similar and all of our offices are different um, in the similar ways. But I guess one thing that I'll just emphasize, um, one of the things that I've really noticed, this is going to sound really dumb too, um, of course, of course, of course, of course, I'm not a complete idiot. I realized that state government is smaller. Indeed, it's a lot smaller than the federal government. But I think something I did not fully appreciate until I was actually working there is, sure, but it's not just smaller. It's not just a lot smaller. It's not just a lot, lot smaller. It is orders of magnitude smaller. And I think in ways, especially for people when you're first starting out your legal career, are ways that are largely good. You have the opportunity to get responsibility to do things that you would never get to do at DOJ at the beginning of your legal. I mean, I mean, it's funny because the argument for DOJ over law firms, and this is true too, is that you get opportunities at DOJ that you would never get at a law firm. You get opportunities in state government that you would never get at DOJ um, that early in your career. And there are just so few – there are so many fewer layers between you and the senior policymakers and the senior policy decisions in state government, again, than there ever were – even in a place like DOJ. So I think that's one of the real pitches um, for state government. Yeah. Can, can I intervene real quick? So uh, how I found out about this job is it, it stitches together the, <laughs> the fabric even closer was from uh, Walter Dellinger's son, Hampton Dellinger, <laughs> who was a partner at my law firm. And I told him I was interested in moving down to North Carolina and I had been talking to folks down there and he said, well, why don't you work for the attorney general? <laughs> I can put you in touch. And uh, that's how I got my job. Wow, all roads lead to Walter Dellinger. <laughs> if you know a member of that, just, tell, just call up a member of that family and ask them what you should do and they will tell you. Well, actually, we'll be publishing a list of <laughs> 
final numbers <laughs> after this uh, for the Dellinger clan. So yeah. just Two other eyes peeled. points on, on what Toby was saying is that as you're thinking about, you know, starting your career, state government really is where you can get the most responsibility. So, you know, my office has a fellowship program of which UVA is part, um, and our fellows, let's see, they, you know, they're straight out of law school. They just, you know, passed the bar exam, um, and they, like my first, my one recent fellow, sorry, um, is currently preparing a case in the D.C. Circuit. Um, you know, she's already argued a case in the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, our former fellow argued a case in the D.C. Circuit and, and lost, but argued a case in the D.C. Court of Appeals and won. Um, and, like, these are experiences that they got within months of graduating from law school, and those are experiences that I think you have to be at a firm for 10 years or at justice for three or four before you can get not just one, but several arguments under your belt. Um, and, you know, they go on from the fellowship to do clerkships, to go on to private practice, and a large number of them end up coming back to the DCAG's office because that's where they get the the, mess, the best and most experiences. Um, and also the, the lack of layers is like sort of, it's really great, but it's also kind of surprising. Like one day I was supposed to have a, a conference call with some of the DC Council's staff members about a gun issue and like there's a knock on the door and all of a sudden the chairman of the DC Council is like standing in my office and I had not yet changed into my work shoes, <laughs> <laughs> like my blazer's on the back of the door and I'm like, oh, hello, sir. Like, yes, have a seat in my very messy office and we will talk gun laws. I thought I was meeting with your like, you know, low-level <coughs> intern. Um, and so in terms of just getting networking experience and just getting to know how a particular jurisdiction works, I think that's unparalleled in state government. Awesome. Okay. So that, I think we'll, we'll go on uh, some of the track I had planned, but feel free to continue doing what you all just did, because <laughs> as, as I mentioned to you in my emails, you, you all are much better at this than I. So, um, but I did want to start a little bit, uh, and I think this is especially relevant to law students who are trying to sort of plan out the, the arc of their career and you know, maybe they just end up with a circuit clerkship in their fall 2L semester, and, you know, you just have that, and that's fine. But some of us plan for a little longer, so sort of the the path from clerking and, which, as far as I understand, is, is a fairly academic exercise and a fairly purely legal exercise insofar as you aren't really advocating so much. Moving from that into a litigator's shoes, you know, whether that's appellate or uh, trial level, and maybe we should talk about that later, but um, what sort of skills did you find were useful in the clerking side of things, and then how did you transition onto the, the advocacy side of things in terms of taking a side, and did that involve learning sort of new skills on the fly, hearkening back to law school, sort of what did you carry with you, what did you have to pick up? Yeah, sure, I can start. Uh, Yeah, so I uh, was very fortunate to clerk at all three levels of the federal court system, in the district court, in the court of appeals, and the Supreme Court. And uh, if you have uh, the luxury of choice, I would give uh, two pieces of advice, I think. I think one is I learned by far the most at the district court and in terms of substantive law because you're just so many – um, issues are coming at you all the time, and uh, you're actually in the courtroom, and you're seeing your judge making on-the-fly evidentiary rulings, and you're you know passing notes, being like, "I found a case that is similar to what we're dealing with right now as the trial is happening." Uh, uh, but and the volume of cases is uh, at least I, I was in the Southern District of New York, and it was just much higher than in other courts. Uh, so, in terms of the, learning about the practice of law, even as an appellate lawyer, believe it or not, uh, I think I learned the most in that clerkship. Second is that I think it's, it's not so intuitive, or it wasn't to me, but that it's incredibly valuable to practice where you clerked. 
So uh, I wish now that I'd clicked on the Fourth Circuit. <laughs> you know, we have so many cases there, and um, we there's uh, you know a half dozen or so attorneys in uh, the North Carolina Department of Justice who who clicked there, and we're just calling on them all the time uh, to understand. Uh, the dynamics uh, at that court and that uh, no one in our office understands because we didn't clerk there. Uh, and so local court-specific knowledge is, is really important. So to the extent you have a choice, uh, I would clerk in the district court where you want to practice. I would absolutely echo clerking in the district court. Um, and I think law schools, especially elite law schools, really push you to court of appeals clerkships because they're prestigious and they get to say, like, however many of their alum, you know, clerked on whichever circuit. Um, but a professor of mine, like, I knew nothing about clerking. I'm the only person in my family went to law school. Like, I thought clerking was, like, you know, a Kevin Smith movie from the 90s. Um, so I sat down with a professor of mine, and he, like, went through the list of judges that I was thinking about. And he's like, you know, Judge Pollock is not on here. And I'm like, who's Judge Pollock? And he's like, he's a district judge in Pennsylvania. And I was like, why would I want to clerk? on a district court in Pennsylvania and he said because it's a great experience and he's an amazing judge and I looked into him and spoke with some of his former clerks and um, went to clerk for him and it was absolutely the best experience I had in terms of mentorship in terms of learning about the law in terms of learning about how litigation works Um, you know if you can be really fortunate find a district court judge that outsources all their discovery to a magistrate judge because then you don't (laughs) have to do any of the discovery Um, but it was just such a crash course in litigation um, and being able to see things from the motion to dismiss through motion to summary judgment, getting to observe trials. And even though that is the only trial court litigation I or trial court experience I've really had in my career, it has been invaluable for being an appellate lawyer. My single biggest career regret by far is that I did not do a district court clerkship. Like it's not even close. If you it's if clearly you, held you back. If you ask me like <laughs> if you ask me what if you ask me what number two was, I'd actually have to fit it's not that there aren't others, but if you I would have to think about what number two is and it probably would depend on what day you ask me. But number one is not in doubt. Number one is not close. I wish I had done a district court clerkship. Um, and, and, I meant, and I meant to kind of do one, but I just, the timing got, got yeah, I know, we could have got to go to reunions together. Um, Still can. Next sabbatical. <laughs> I think I've aged out of that. Um, so, but to address uh, something else that Will said, I actually, implicit, oh, let me take a step back. Um, I actually think it's absolutely been invaluable in terms of the, because the, you're right, that the, 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 it's different, but I think... I think having been on that side of it, and I wish I'd been on the district court side, but I was on the, the, the side of the other two courts, um, the other two levels of the federal judiciary, I think seeing it from the judge's perspective is invaluable to making you a better advocate because I think it gives you, it gives you mostly a list of things not to do. Um, and, and it does – one, you just read. I mean, first and foremost, the single best way to make yourself a really good brief writer or a good writer of any kind is to read a lot of writing uh, and preferably at least some of it's really good and a lot of it will be really bad. Um, and I think I just learned a lot there. I think the other thing that's absolutely invaluable about clerking at any level of the federal judiciary uh, – I mean, this varies a lot because judges use their law clerks differently, but at least the ones that I clerked for – the sheer amount of writing that I had to do in that job was vastly more writing on a vastly more regular basis than I'd ever had to do. Although, in fact, even more than that, the fellowship that Lauren and I uh, did at DOJ was even more extreme than that. I had never at that point in my life done anywhere near as much writing as you do as a Bristow fellow. Just write again and again. And on some of the things that are really easy and some of them are straightforward and some of them are really complicated um, – the single best way, I think, to become a good writer is to read a lot and to write a lot. And clerking or these fellowships just give you this opportunity to the kind of, of that that you don't get any other way. Um, I think the other thing is seeing a lot of lawyers argue. I mean, and again, if you clerk, you'll see a lot of lawyers argue. Um, some of them will be spectacularly bad. 
I mean, you probably won't learn a lot from them because the things that make them spectacularly bad are probably things that you would know are spectacularly bad without anyone telling you they're spectacularly bad. But what you will pick up on is that different people are routinely bad in the same general way. Um, And I think that is something that you gain from watching it. Um, And if you're lucky, you'll see a handful of people who are really, really excellent. And then you can step back and think about what makes them really, really excellent. So I also just, I don't think there's that much difference. I mean, the other thing that I've come to think, I actually don't think there's that much, there's, I think people overstate the difference between persuasive and analytic writing, because I think bad analytic writing isn't persuasive enough, and bad persuasive writing is too persuasive, Um, and so that they're not actually that different. Um, So I think that's another aspect of it for me. Great. Okay, well then, so this is, and and Lauren, I think you mentioned this in the intros, uh, another aspect of practice that has really interested me getting some exposure to it is the fact that an attorney's general office, attorney general's office, and specifically the attorneys general for whom you all work, are elected politicians. And some of them are more on the career attorney side. Some of them are a little bit more career politician. That can vary. It means that their values and the influences and pressures that they're sort of being uh, swayed by can vary, and it means that your jobs as, and actually, this is the funny thing about solicitors general, uh, it really varies. Like, I didn't know if Massachusetts had a solicitor general before I, basically before I got to the attorney general's office. We do, turns out, or state solicitor. But um, you all presumably have to exercise some discretion, but you also have to operate under an attorney general's agenda. And if you could speak a little bit about the way you operate as legal advocates with that extra layer of political gloss over top and, you know, to whatever extent you can, maybe times that's frustrated you or times it's even helped you think sort of push an argument or develop a coalition. Sure. Um, So I think, like, my job has really changed over the past five years. When I first came in, it was the Obama administration, and we had an appointed AG. So then we have still the Obama administration, but an elected AG. And so he had run on a platform of consumer protection and juvenile justice. And so we were looking to shift some of our attentions into those spaces. Then, of course, Obama leaves and Trump becomes president. And um, there's this, like, huge regulatory, like, vacuum. And so a lot of state AGs on the blue side stepped in to, to fill that void. And so we started bringing, you know, litigation over a various, you know, health care and environment and sanctuary cities and DACA and the census and um, emoluments. And so now there's this, like, huge coalition of um, blue MAGs that are working on these these issues together. Those a lot of were issues that we had been in partnership with the Justice Department on in the prior administration, but they then switched sides in the, in the new administration. Um, and so I feel like the job has sort of over those different parts, like where my focus has been, has really shifted. Um, you know, I have an AG who is a lawyer, like he was the managing partner of Venable, he'd been in the White House Counsel's Office, but he also came into this role because he like wants to be a politician, and I think this is his kind of entree into D.C. politics. I suspect he will be our mayor one day. Um, so when he puts his political hat on, he has these kind of like pie-in-the-sky idealistic, like, well, let's sue the administration over X, because he thinks it'll be like a splashy issue that'll be interesting for the district and could be beneficial. And I have to say, well, actually, let's figure out where our litigation priorities should be, right? Like, what is most pressing to the district, what can we win, you know, and so while he's much more focused externally and on the communication side and they're like, what does this mean for D.C.'s place within the union, I'm more focused on like, are we going to get overturned 9-0 by the Supreme Court? Um, And so those conversations, you know, I think they can be 
contentious at times, but at the end of the day, I think that what I really like about my AG is he trusts his lawyers underneath him and his senior staff. Uh, and so if I say, like, no, we don't actually want to be the one leading the charge on X, Y, or Z issue, we should let another state do it, you know, he'll whine about it, he'll think about <laughs> it, and then typically he'll, he'll come around. Um, and I will say this is, I think, one comparison between having an elected AG and not having an elected AG is I don't think uh, District of Columbia versus Heller would have happened if we'd had an elected AG um, because when we lost at this long before I was in the office, but when we lost at the circuit, I think everyone knew if we took it to the Supreme Court, we were likely to lose. Now, obviously, they'd never opined on the Second Amendment, and we there was, it was a lot of uncharted territory, but I think anyone looking at that court at the time would not have like placed bets in our favor. Um, but the mayor at the time, mayors typically, our governors are, are not lawyers. Um, they didn't understand the court. And so despite the fact that my predecessor, the Solicitor General, and the predecessor AG, you know, had lots of meetings with the mayor and the council and said, like, look, this is a really risky gambit, at the end of the day, it was the mayor's call whether to move forward, and they did. And here we are. Um, you know, whereas we had... Um, a concealed carry case that we lost in the circuit last year, and it's uh, an issue that um, has come out in the government's favor in the second, third, fourth, and somewhat of the ninth circuits. Um, and the question was, you know, do we bring a cert petition? And my answer was absolutely not, because we will lose this, not just for us, but for the rest of the country, and it will be heller all over again. And, like, the mayor's office is buzzing and saying, oh, we should do it, we should move forward, but the decision was, like, mine and the attorney general's. And because we were both lawyers at the end of the day, and because we both know how to count, um, we looked at the court <laughs> and figured that was, you know, a non-starter, and that was the end of the inquiry. There wasn't this added layer of, well, we have to look to this executive who has no legal training and then be you know, beholden to whatever that decision is. Can I actually jump in just to clarify for my own sake and maybe for the audience? You're saying that's a, a positive of having the elected AG is having the power vested sort of voter to office as opposed to handed down from the executive. I think voter to office and also that the person in charge at the end of the day has a law degree, which is yeah. not guaranteed if you're subject to a governor or a mayor. That's, that is fascinating, and uh, I, it's consistent with my experience as well. So uh, you know, my boss, uh, he's a politician. He was elected, uh, but he's a lawyer. He's a very good lawyer, uh, and he uh, actually was at DOJ uh, for a long time. He was at a the head of the Consumer Protection Division uh, in our office, and so he is, you know, he knows more about uh, the day-to-day -day functioning of uh, the Department of Justice uh, than most, I think, you know, politicians who are elected as attorney general beforehand. And so I thought that was going to make the job more challenging because you don't have this aura of I'm, I have this expertise or my office has this expertise that you can't, uh, it's kind of inscrutable to you, non-lawyer um, and non-excellent lawyer. But it actually has made it much better and easier because he uh, trusts your judgment and he can understand when you make those kinds of arguments uh, and it's not... Um, uh, you can you can kind of ha the exchange is is very free, free flowing and on the level of um, you know on the same on the same level and so th that's that's a really interesting insight and something that's consistent with my experience too. Yeah. So so yeah. In terms of similar, or different, um, I, our office is, is in a somewhat different position. Um, obviously, I think Lauren's absolutely right. You know, so the Attorney General of Virginia is a lawyer. I think, but he would be the first person to tell you that if he were here, he is principally a politician and has been principally a politician for a while now. He was on the Loudoun County Board of Supervisors. Then he was a state senator. Then he was elected AG. So I mean, the the days in which he sort of 
that his professional life was principally as a practicing attorney was very long time ago at this point. He has been principally a politician for quite a while right now, and he would be the first person who's, to tell you that if he was here. But that being said, it's not the same as – I mean, again, I, the governor of Virginia is someone I think very highly of, but he's a, he's a physician. Right Before he was a politician, he had spent his entire career as a physician. He doesn't have a law degree. He's never been a lawyer. So I imagine that the conversation would be very, very different. Um, so I think that that is a, a very significant um, difference. I mean, I, I do think one of the other things that's interesting about the current job, um, you know, I've worked for political appointees before, but I've never worked for a politician before. And that's a very interesting difference. Um, and again, just – I mean that's another feature of state government. I think – I mean if you go into the federal government, it will be a long time before you work – well, unless you go to work on the Hill. If you, if, but within the executive branch, I mean formally speaking, there are only two politicians within the executive branch. And you have to get very, very, very senior in the executive branch before you are working for the politician. Whereas in the state level, especially because the AG is elected, you can be working for the politician very quickly. And I think – there are challenges, but there are also things that are really interesting about that. Um, and you, you, you are part of conversations that you would not be part of um, at the federal level um, much sooner. Um, and the kinds of considerations that go into it. The other thing that's really interesting is that I interact in a way that I never did in my previous jobs um, with non-lawyers within the AG's office. I mean, so at DOJ, I pretty much never interacted with non-attorneys. Um, every, virtually everyone I interacted with. Well, virtually everyone I interacted with, with at DOJ was either an attorney or people who provide support for attorneys, like paralegals or, or legal assistants. But, but they were lawyers or people who work for lawyers. Um, at the AG's office, I pretty regularly interact with people who are not lawyers, um, communications people, the AG's chief of staff, people that – these are smart, interesting people, but they're just not lawyers and they don't approach things from the legal perspective. So that can be a really interesting uh, – really interesting experience, too. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I'm someone who never had any interest in working on the Hill. I don't have a keen interest in in politics. I have zero desire to ever run for elected office. And so when I, like, see creatures in the room that actually (laughs) find joy in that, it's like, you know, it's it's a really great learning experience. Um, It very much validates my decision to not want to go down that path um, because I can't be that friendly all the time. But, you know, it's it's been a huge learning experience for me to work directly with people who are, you know, in the process of, of running for things, are running for things, have just come into a office and just the the people that surround them you know so I think I'm forever in this battle with one of the comms guys because whenever we file like big splashy amicus briefs they always end up getting filed on a Friday we're always waiting on some like straggling state typically Virginia um, <laughs> and so it gets filed at like 6 p.m. and of course the comms guy is like 6 p.m. on a Friday this is like a dead news day and I'm like 6 p.m. on a Friday is like six hours before the brief was actually due to be filed on <laughs> so, like, I count it as a win he sees it as a catastrophic loss and so trying to you know bring those considerations into play while you are setting forth your litigation strategy is something that you know I never had to think about when I was in private practice or when I was at DOJ because we were routinely sending things to the printer at like 8, 9 p.m., dropping them off at the Supreme Court at like 10 to midnight. Um, and when you're doing something that is going to have press response or when you know the post is on standby because they you know want the, the copy once it's filed, um, there's a whole other layer of, of communications that need to happen. That's a great transition into what I think will be the last question I ask here, which is uh, just sort of some of some insight into the practical function as members of coalitions of attorneys general who are working on larger lawsuits against the administration. I, there's been a lot of interest in, in hearing about, for example, the lawsuit against uh, Department of Education, Secretary DeVos. 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 Yeah. Um, so if you could just speak a little bit about working with other attorneys general in that 
broader federal sense, which isn't always a big part of the job, but is often at least sort of in the news. I'm sure the communications people are all over that sort of thing. So um, talking a little bit about the day-to-day of trying to work between offices. I mean, I think that it's a big part of the job for whoever's party is not in office. Um, so, like, during the Obama years, the, the red states were all doing yeah. a lot of multi-state um, litigation and amicus work. And um, now that, that Trump is in office, it's a lot of the, the Democratic AGs. And so there is the Democratic AGs Association, DAGA, um, and there's a cohort of them that brainstorm on issues that they can work on together and also try and decide, like, who's going to run point on any particular project. And so, you know, something like the travel ban becomes, like, well, who has the airport that can then have the plaintiffs withstanding and when you're doing something that's really fast moving it's just kind of who it can be first to you know the brief on something Uh, and so like that was a case where it made a lot of sense for Washington State to take the lead Um, when we were looking at the emoluments clause litigation um, because the Trump Hotel is based in DC um, that became an area that seemed like something that we should be pursuing Um, and so in terms of deciding kind of who quarterbacks any project I think it really is just a confluence of who has standing who who thinks they have the time what court you're going to be in and then just, you know, the mad scramble to get something filed. Um, And for other projects, you know, like for Second Amendment litigation, that's something that D.C. has been fighting for a very long time. And so, like, that's an issue on which we are happy to support other jurisdictions as they need briefs. And because, um, you know, concealed carry and ghost guns and 3D printed guns and all of that is, like, you know, there's a lot of litigation around that. You know, there are jurisdictions that look to us to to work on those things. Um, I think that my... AG, since he is like the head of DAGA, he's very much a blue AG, it's very easy for him to come out and commit and say that we're going to work on X, Y, or Z issue. Um, So, you know, we filed a a brief on behalf of a lot of states in the the district court in the ACL's suit um, over the decision by the Justice Department not to give um, victims of domestic violence and gang violence asylum protections the way that they had previously. And so that was, you know, just a question of my boss saw it in the news and he said, like, we're going to get involved. And like, the decision was made and so suddenly we're writing a brief. Um, I think it's probably harder for some of the more purple states. Um, Ryan and and Toby can speak to this better than I can, um, where there are a lot of different considerations that come into play. In a state like Maryland, where you have a Democratic AG and a Republican governor, I think there's a lot of back and forth that can happen as to which projects you're going to work on. Um, And then you sometimes end up seeing amicus briefs where, you know, the governor's on one side and the AG's on the other side of a state. And you start thinking, like, are you guys canceling each other out? Like, did you know the other one was going to join on that (laughs) side? Um, And so being in D.C., which is so, you know, heavily blue, those are not considerations that I have to think about, and I think that makes my job in some ways a lot easier, because I just take orders from my boss as to what we're focusing on and what we're doing, and there's no one on the other side saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to run against you if you do that, or I'm going to make a campaign ad about this if you, you know, go out on some, you know, tangent. I will actually say the multi-state is one of the places you do see an interesting type of politics, uh, small p, because um, everything Lauren said is true, and I agree with. And then sometimes the AG of California is running for re-election, and the California AG's office has decided that they're not going to play nice with anybody. Um, and actually, I've had enough of these conversations occasionally where you're talking to people from other states, and you're like, can't we all just work on this together? And there's this conversation that happens at our level and below where, like, I mean, obviously we should do that. Obviously that's the only sensible thing to do here. But my boss is currently running for re-election. And we've been told that we are doing our own thing in this case, and you can all do whatever the heck you want to do. Um, California, I don't think I'm saying anything <laughs> secret here. I think anybody who's in this world, California is a massive offender in this. Um, 
California is, well, both, I mean, look, it's by far the biggest state in the country. It's by far the biggest blue state in the country. It's a deep blue state where the only risk that the AG of California has to run in is getting defeated by another Democrat, right? Like, that's the only actual political risk that the AG of California faces. Um, and so, for various reasons, Sometimes California does not play nicely with others. Now, in fairness, you know, it's easy to look at your side of, of, of whatever the group and think this is not the problem, the other things. My friends who work in red states assure me that the precise same thing is true among the red states when it comes to Texas, um, who basically takes the attitude that Texas will decide what Texas is going to do. You may join or not, um, and you may do among the things that Texas has decided not to do. That's, that's what you, a red state who's not Texas, will work on. You will work on the things that Texas has decided not to do. Um, so it happens on both sides. And, you know, it's a combination, again. It's the, so Texas is the largest red state. It's defiantly, thoroughly red, so they don't have to worry. It's not a purple state in any possible sense. They've had a strong SG's office for a long time, right. so they've focused on these issues. They have staffing for it. Every single AG of Texas is running for governor. Right, like or Senate, or, or Senate right? Was the, right, and so they they just have incentives of a way that, that their incentives are to do as much as they can, as aggressively as they can, as activist as they can, um, and so that is a place where you do see interesting sort of push pull about who's going to do this. I mean, sometimes there's basically just games of chicken where different states announce that they intend to do things, and it's like, I mean, I'm going to do it, whether you do it or not, it's up to you. So it's it's an interesting. I think on balance, it's actually striking how well coordinated things get. Um, because they could easily get less coordinated. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I, I have fewer insights here, I think, because uh, I am the deputy on the panel. But, uh, you know, I, that's, this is something that I, I really was excited to, to work on uh, when I took this job, to, to work on the multi-state coalitions. And I uh, think, consistent with what Toby was saying, is a lot of these uh, actions would not be possible if there weren't, weren't, uh, weren't some teamwork involved, because, you know, these offices are just very small. Uh, you know, a lot of Solicitor General's offices around the country are, uh, are two people, you know, and are before uh, uh, we came in, um, uh, my Attorney General has expanded the office slightly, but before it was a Solicitor General and a paralegal. That was the office. Uh, and so it's not like you can, you know, bring a, uh, a, a you know, census case or something with, with that as your uh, team. And so the coalitions, especially for offices that are smaller, it, it's really important. Uh, I think... Um, I guess one other thing I'd like to mention, too, is, you know, we put a lot of resources into uh, coalition coalitions of uh, attorneys general where it's not suing the administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we devote a lot of resources, actually, to uh, a lot of the consumer protection issues. My boss is former consumer protection head and, like, the op- opioids um, epidemic. And so it is actually kind of fun to, to, you know, be working with your counterparts in the red states. And you know that... On some of these cases where, you know, we have different email <laughs> listservs and stuff, but uh, there's other things where, uh, and for the same reason, uh, I should say, you know, my prior law firm, like, I was at Boy Schiller, we thought of ourselves as, like, this lean, mean, you know, litigation-focused firm. Uh, it had, that firm has way more attorneys than, <laughs> than all of the, the blue sta- democratic Attorneys General, Solicitor General's offices across the entire country. That one firm, right? <laughs> Including California and New York. Uh, and so you, when you're, you know, suing uh, a private company that can draw on those resources, you're also overmatched. Mm-hmm. 
And I think you see some really interesting coalitions at the Supreme Court in the amicus briefs. Um, so, for example, we had a merits case last term that was on a civil procedure issue. And so we thought it would be interesting to have a red state write our amicus brief. And so Wisconsin took the lead and wrote an amicus brief for us. And we had this smattering of, like, 20-odd states that really ran the gamut. Um, you know, they're, I think, regardless red or blue, um, we are jurisdictions that represent uh, police officers. And so we care about qualified immunity. And so qualified immunity cases, you get red and blue on, on the same brief, you know, arguing on the same side. And so there are definitely – I mean, there are some amicus briefs that almost all 50 states will sign because it's an issue that affects the states and is important to the states uniformly. Mm-hmm. So for all the times that there is a red state and a blue state brief in a case, there are plenty of other cases where there is one just state's brief that focuses so on well, issues that affect everyone. We like sovereign immunity, and we don't like preemption. What else? <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are things we could all agree on? We don't like sovereign – we like sovereign immunity. We don't like preemption. Those are the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I think most of us like qualified immunity. Most of us like qualified immunity. That's yeah. true. I guess one question I think that our offices might differ in a lot is how criminal litigation works. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think my office is a, a really strange beast in this regard um, because the District of Columbia, in its weird pseudo state status, um, does not handle the bulk of its own criminal litigation. Um, the Justice Department actually prosecutes um, all adult felonies uh, and some adult misdemeanors. So, our criminal jurisdiction is limited to juvenile crimes, of which we have complete jurisdiction. Um, and then certain adult misdemeanors, they tend to be the, you know, lewd, indecent exposure, or, you know, possession of an open container of alcohol. Like, you know, not, no one's killing anybody. That goes to the, the feds. Um, and so, you know, the criminal appeals that we have in our office tend to be either the juvenile cases, because, you know, juvenile homicide is going to get up on appeal, you know, or cases that affect adults where it's going to have some sort of impact on their livelihood. So if you, you know, have your third DUI conviction, you're not going to be able to be the Metro bus driver. Um, so, you know, but our, our the number and the scope of them is quite limited. So I would say we handle probably, you know, less than 50 a year on the criminal side of things. Whereas I think that um, the other state AG's offices do a considerable amount of criminal Litigation. Yeah, so there is a actually separate criminal appellate division, and uh, uh, and so we ha- have jurisdiction over all criminal appeals uh, throughout the state, and so there's a dedicated criminal appellate section. But there's also this uh, rotation system, which I think is unique, where every attorney at the Department of Justice is expected to uh, be on a criminal brief rotation and handle their own criminal appeals, and it's the only way that we could. Uh, yeah, exactly. That we could uh, handle all the cases and. Uh, the Solicitor General's office, uh, we take uh, a subset of criminal appeals that are criminal in you know form, but civil in substance. So you know when there's like a constitutional defense to a prosecution or something like that, the statute that you're uh, prosecuting me under is unconstitutional. That, those sorts of cases uh, we'll take, and uh, so that's kind of our our niche. So Virginia is really weird. Um, so the AG has no control over trial-level stuff. That's all done by the local elected Commonwealth's attorneys. Once a case gets appealed, it becomes under the AG's jurisdiction, but it's not my office. There's a criminal appeals section. Um, so our office does not do – let's see. We don't do anything in the state intermediate court. We do no criminal cases at all in the state intermediate appellate court. We presumptively do not do them in the state Supreme Court either, although with Ryan's point, there's – there was, for example, last year, Virginia has a statute that makes it, un- uh, makes it illegal to use a noose to threaten someone. And there was a First Amendment challenge to that. And we did that because it was, in our view, it was a First Amendment case more than it was actually a criminal case. Um, but we don't do routine Fourth, Fifth, Sixth Amendment cases. But, but if there's a First Amendment issue or if there's something like that, um, we provide sort of background support for those cases. Uh, we, provide, we review the briefs before they're filed. We sometimes sit on a moot courts, but we don't handle those cases. Um, 
But once cases get to the U.S. Supreme Court, we do all of them, uh, including criminal. So we have a cert petition in a criminal case right now. Um, in a criminal case. And so that's the sort of allocation of authority that we have. One of the big differences between state SG's offices, I think, is whether they handle the state's routine criminal appeals. The really big state SG's offices are the ones that do handle those. So Illinois, Washington State, I think New York, handles their state's routine criminal appeals. And that is part of what results in some of those states having huge SG's offices. Um, the smaller states just don't because even in the smallest state, if, if you do criminal appeals, you need a significant number of people who do basically just that, and that's, that's how our office works. Okay. So I want to make sure, and we actually we technically have the room for another uh, little over half an hour, but I also don't want to hold either you guys or everyone else for too long. I think why don't... If any of you have any sort of remaining burning questions for each other, um, because I know there are some differences, maybe you're just looking to hash something out, get get someone to finally sign on an amicus brief, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. I did uh, send any, your any, boss an email last night. <laughs> any, anything like that. Is is there anything that's sort of on your mind? Well, maybe it would be helpful for you guys to know how big our offices mm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my office is, is probably the biggest. I have um, 16 line attorneys that work for me. Um, so 13 of them are on the civil side, three of them are on the uh, criminal side, and then I have a criminal deputy and a civil deputy. Um, the reason that our office is so big is that we handle all of the appeals from the district's 50 agencies. Um, and so there's a DC Administrative Procedures Act that generates a lot of administrative litigation, and so probably 300 odd cases a year come in that way. Um, and you know those I think are kind of like the criminal appeals. It's a Right, it's just like sufficiency of the evidence, of, you know, arbitrary and capricious, and so we have a lot of that litigation. Um, and then also in terms of the allocation of our work, I would say that a third of it is in the D.C. Circuit and two-thirds of it is in the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, and that's, I think, also due to the fact that there's a huge uh, administrative component that gets routed um, from agency and adjudication and, uh, you know, Office of Administrative Hearings type boards to uh, the D.C. Court of Appeals. Does the Court of Appeals have original jurisdiction over those yes. administrative appeals? I wish they did not, um, uh, but that, that is where we are. So one of my big accomplishments in the first six months is that I've managed to get the number of attorneys who work for me from two to three. Uh, so uh, we have four lawyers, uh, two of whom are, I guess, eight or so years out of law school, eight to ten years out of law school, um, one of whom is a fellow who's with us for one year. Um, and so we have this recurring fellowship that we've set up um, for a post designed for someone who's finished a federal appellate clerkship. Um, and then we have one paralegal secretary, and we have an extern, and that's our office. Um, in, I'm hoping to hire one other person. Uh, in, but in terms of what I think that's helpful work allocation, my guess, it fluctuates. I would guess that we are 50% in the Fourth Circuit, um, 35% in the state Supreme Court, and 15% in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Virginia, for some reason, just seems to have. I mean, maybe I think this this year is a little strange. I think we have an abnormally large amount of U.S. Supreme Court stuff right now. Um, we have one merits case. We're almost certainly going to have a second, and there's a possibility we're going to have a third, uh, like a real, like a non-trivial possibility we're going to have a third this year. Um, and so that's probably the allocation I'd say of our workload. What about you, Ryan? Well, yeah, we have. So we started out with. Uh, my boss, uh, uh, his name is Matt Sachak, and me and another deputy. And uh, then we, the paralegal moved on to a new position uh, elsewhere, and 
state government. And so we replaced the paralegal with a junior attorney and we started a fellowship. So we have five now, which feels like very flush. And uh, we, I think we haven't had a merits Supreme Court case yet. And so at some point that well will fill up again and that'll be fun. But uh, I think it's probably about maybe half in the Fourth Circuit. We actually just had a D.C. Circuit case, an administrative case. That was pretty fun. Um, But usually the Fourth Circuit and then half in the state courts. And we actually uh, have been more in the state court of appeals than the state Supreme Court uh, because we wanted to focus on the cases that were, um, you know, important to the state generally and not just what level of court it was at. And it turned out at least this year uh, the more important cases were in the state court of appeals uh, and uh, we thought, you know, in anticipation of them possibly going up to the Supreme Court, we should just handle it directly. Uh, and so that's kind of our split. And I think unless you're, like, Texas, your Supreme Court litigation really varies. Like, we had two merits cases last year, and then we hadn't had any in, like, the three or four years before that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of brief and op work um, and not mm-hmm. as much cert petition work just because, you know, we typically, you know, win below and are trying to defend our rulings and stave off cert. That is definitely a feature of being a litigant for the government. As a, if you're a government appellant litigant, you're the you're the appellee far far more often than you're the appellant, because um, the government usually wins below. Only have to wait, write one brief. Take <laughs> <laughs> <Big> advantage. <laughs> um, all right. So we, uh, if anyone in the audience has questions now, yeah, go ahead, jump in. So two questions. Uh, number one, what do y'all think? Um, So I think very highly of the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, I think that the D.C. Court of Appeals judges hold a candle to the federal appellate judges anywhere in the country. Um, So you have, you know, two former appellate chiefs of the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, two former appellate chiefs from the Public Defender Service. Uh, You know, they they are all fantastic. So uh, I think that is a terrific court on which to clerk, uh, especially if you want to do so in the D.C. area. Um, That's the only state Supreme Court I practice in, so I can't really speak to, like, the Virginia or Maryland courts. Um, Yes, we are always looking for one else summers, externships, um, and we do have what's called the Rough Fellowship Program, um, which is a one-year fellowship for um, immediate, like, graduates from law school. Um, You don't have to do a clerkship or anything before then, and there's um, one guaranteed UVA slot every year. Um, So uh, talk to Annie Kim about that if you're interested. I think they I think they can be great. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about the state, sort of like the state AG's offices, I think, um, I think there's a lot of variation. Um, even in talking, I'm now bizarrely to an age where I know some people who are like on state Supreme Courts now. And one of the things that I've gathered is they, they really differ a lot. Um, they differ a lot both in terms of how the courts operate. They differ a lot in terms of the court's jurisdiction. And they differ a lot in terms of their clerkship model. Um, some of them are career clerks, purely career clerks. Some of them are term clerks, but the term clerks are shared among multiple justices. And some of them do the federal model where individual justices hire individual clerks to clerk for them. And I'm not saying any of those models are necessarily bad, but those are very different clerkship models. Um, and I think you'd want to know which of those clerkship models. I mean, the, the, you know, the upside of the you are hired to clerk for an individual person, you work for them, which is, which is the federal model, um, is that if that person is great, I mean, it's just sort of an unparalleled experience to work closely with someone, um, to make a real, to get a real, um, and so I think you'd want to know that. You'd want to know what's the clerkship culture. Um, I'd also look, uh, if you're looking at some of those, to the extent you can, and information at the state level is harder to find than at the federal level, to the extent you can, figure out what people do after they have those jobs. 
Um, and again, it's not to say that anything is right or wrong, but just you want to think about how is this logically going to go somewhere else and does this job potentially go somewhere that I want to go? Um, in which case, great. I mean, one of the things I've noticed, for example, in the Virginia AG's office, um, there's quite a few people in Richmond and in the Virginia AG's office who clerked on the state Supreme Court. So if you want to work in a state's AG's office, I think working on their state Supreme Court can be a great experience to have, a great opportunity to have. Um, I'd be more skeptical potentially to go work for a state Supreme Court in a city or a state where you don't want to be because um, that may be less obviously transferable. I mean, there are probably individual examples. There are, there are, for example, at least two justices on the California Supreme Court who are absolutely amazing, and you should clerk for them if you have the opportunity, regardless of whether you, you want to be in California. But, but if the question was, do I go to clerk on state Supreme Court X for Justice Y, even though I don't ever want to live there, it's not immediately obvious to me that that would necessarily be what you'd want to do. Yeah, I agree. So our new fellow is, uh, he just got off a North Carolina Supreme Court clerkship, and he is invaluable. I mean, no one else in the office uh, has been, knows anything about the inner workings of the court other than through public knowledge and having practiced there as lawyers. And so uh, he is, his clerkship experience is much more valuable to the office than mine, uh, I'll say. And so uh, I think if the general advice is, uh, get if you can, get the kind of clerkship uh, that allows you to uh, transfer that knowledge to your ultimate employer. Like, uh, if you want to do appellate law or state government law in a state, then, yeah, I think state Supreme Court clerkship is excellent. And, and another thing, if you're thinking about state Supreme Court clerkships and you're a one owl, do an internship with the, mm. the court that summer because you'll get yeah. a real sense of whether it's, you know, the kind of experience you're looking for. Yeah. I know that you guys all kind of practice in front of different places now. Do you feel like that if you're interested in kind of government-facing uh, work that being in D.C. to start uh, is something that's helpful. Does that matter? And two, I think that for what I've read, that uh, it's good to hear that you might be able to learn how to cook while also um, <laughs> you know, working here. So it's good to, good to know. But, well, of course, if you're going to work in the, the D.C. office. Yeah, I mean, if, I think if you want to work at DCOAG, working in D.C. is a good idea. Um, but I actually don't even think that that's necessarily true because we do have a lot of people that come to D.C. to work in the AG's office. Um, and I think that, conversely, there are a lot of our colleagues that left D.C. to go to state AG's offices, either where they were from or where they had family, um, because those experiences were available. So I am, you know, I just moved to North Carolina um, uh, less than two years ago, and I, I love it there. Uh, and uh, I, it worked out for me starting out in D.C. I think we, we do have a lot of people who uh, reach out. Uh, most people are, you know, are trying to come back home, and they're at a big firm in D.C. or New York, uh, and they've done lots of fancy stuff, and they're thinking, okay, well, I want to, you know, go home now. And there's actually – it's harder to make that transition than I had expected because, again, there's just – these offices are very small, uh, but uh, so, but it gives you it, you know, it's kind of an option maintaining thing, right? Like it, it does offer a lot of credibility, really. It does uh, if someone comes in and has worked at a uh, international law firm uh, and uh, says they want to come work in state government. So I agree, it's completely a balance. Uh, this is as aggressively prescriptive as I'm going to get here. Um, it's not free, though. I think, and I think this is completely consistent with what Ryan just said. And this is a little bit of a do what I said, not what I did. Um, although, in fairness to me, I guess, I, in fairness to young me, I, I sort of look back upon young me and decide that he was an idiot in a lot of ways. But one of the things, um, but I, but I guess in his defense, I was I was not somebody who knew where I wanted to end up. 
Um, so I guess this is the prescriptive. If your life story, and only you sort of know what your life story is. If your life story is, I'm going to move home at some point, and you know that, and you know where home is, I think people pretty persistently err on the side of saying, I'll do something for a while, and then I'll go home. If you know where you want your legal career to be, I would urge you to give more weight to go where you want your legal career to be. Don't tell yourself you're going to go there at some point in the future. Um, Not that you can't, not that you won't, not that it's impossible, but what Ryan is saying, I think if you really want to have your legal career in place X, one of the best things you can do at the beginning of your legal career is start your legal career there and start your legal career there as fast as you can. Um, because I think you're, lo- you're losing time. You're losing opportunities to get to know people. Um, I'm already realizing this. I've spent no time. In, before my current job, I've spent literally no time in Richmond. But one of the things that's become apparent to me is the people who do the kind of law I do in Richmond are an incredibly small group of people. And most of them have been there pretty much since the day they finished clerking or the day they graduated from law school. Um, and they all know each other. And they all have these webs of connections to each other that I don't have. And I'm doing my best to make up for them. But, like, I don't have them. Um, and so I guess I'd add one something. This is something Rachel Harmon said to me a number of years ago, too. I think the same thing is largely true when it comes to government versus private practice. Again, I'm not saying, look, I'm someone who was at a firm for two years. I took the post-clerkship bag of cash. I'm not going to blame anybody for doing that. But again, it's not free. Um, so Rachel, one of the things that she said to me over years, if you know you want to be a federal prosecutor, go be a federal prosecutor. Don't tell yourself, I'll go work at a firm for three years, and then I'll be a federal prosecutor. If you know what you want to do, or go after, because among other things, maybe you'll be like Ryan, and you'll get there and go like, oh my God, I don't want to be a federal prosecutor. But it's much better to discover that when you're four years out of law school than when you're eight years. Like, so you go to work at the firm, you're there for four years, and then you finally got your job at the legal advisor at the state department, and you're like, oh my God don't want to work at the legal advisor's office. But it's harder. I mean, the, the, law, the farther you get out of law school, the farther your life advances, um, real estate, spouses, children, you get less and less flexible. The, the single biggest thing you have when you get out of law school, for most people, and most I know everyone's situation is different, but most people in most situations, one of the biggest things you have when you get out of law school and when you start your legal career is you have a degree of flexibility that you are unlikely to get back. And that's one of your most valuable assets. And if you if you say, I'm going to do something right now that's not what I really want to do, just recognize that you're putting yourself in a position that when the opportunity to do what you really want to do comes along, you might be substantially less flexible than you are at that moment. Um, the sheer number of people that you meet who say, I would have loved to do X, but I never really got the opportunity to, it's... It's not a non-trivial number of people. Um, I meet people all the time who say, I would love to work at DOJ, but like now I'm a partner at this law firm and I really can't afford it. <laughs> yeah. Right? That, that's not – that's a real thing. Can I say one thing, yeah. too, is that the – so y- you all uh, are going to uh, graduate from here with uh, elite credentials, but uh, focus can really compete very, very effectively with credentials. And so when you have someone who comes in and – uh, did not go to a fancy law school and maybe didn't even do particularly well at their not fancy law school, if they have been doing uh, local work uh, and have, building con- have built connections and uh, a reputation, uh, that outweighs the fancy credentials and the fact that you worked at Cravath for four years or something. It, 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 there's no question that you hire that person over uh, the fancy uh, credentials. And so um, I think there's just a weighing process and there's a lot of people out there who are, are using focus to, um, uh, I guess, overcome the lack of having gone to UVA. 
I think the only thing I would add to that, because they're all really excellent points, is that um, it has to be about the experiences that you're getting. If you're going to a big law firm and all you're doing is doc review for four years, you're not going to be as competitive of an applicant if you're looking to come into an office where they need you to be able to take depositions and go to trial and argue appeals yeah. on day one. And so, um, you know, wherever you are, make sure you're getting the experiences that are going to set you up for the next thing. So when I have vacancies in my office, I get, you know, tons of applications from people that are like, have been at Wilmer for eight years, but they maybe argued like one pro bono appeal. And like, how does that stack up? to somebody who, you know, maybe was at like a nonprofit or another state AG's office and has significant relevant experience. So they might not have the fancy shiny credential, they might not have gone to the, like the fanciest of schools, but I know they have a proven track record of doing the thing I need them to do and mm-hmm. that is invaluable. Go. At the state or the federal level? All right, so that would never happen to me, so I will defer to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, I think it depends a lot. I think think this is true both state and federal level. I would never – I mean, as a person who worked for the Bush Justice Department for a year and a half, and I'm not a Republican, um, I think for me the answer is – you, I have in a situation where it's not your preferred party, I think I have to think very carefully about what is the job that I'm being asked to do. Um, uh, and because sometimes, right, I mean, I, I think this is a question that a lot of people are facing like literally right now. This is a very timely, salient question, right? And I always would say, well, start out with what's the job, right? Because some jobs, it just varies. Um, and I would think really carefully, what does this job do? What does this position do. So let me just give you a really tangible example. There's a part of the civil division at DOJ called Federal Programs that basically defends the federal government from constitutional litigation. And I, I actually have a former student of mine who was basically had her heart set on working for federal programs and had been a summer intern at federal programs and was beloved by federal programs and clearly could have gotten a job at federal programs and said, post-2016, I do not want to work for the part of the federal government that defends the federal government when it gets sued for violating the Constitution. That, that, is, that is going to be a dramatically different job because of the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Um, you know, if, if, but on the other hand, when people ask me if they should apply for the Bristow Fellowship at DOJ, I say, of course you should apply for the Bristow Fellowship at DOJ. Most of what you're going to do is write briefs in opposition to cert and whether the government should appeal suppression motions. It's going to be almost materially indistinguishable from what you would have done during the Obama administration. Right. Um, and as someone who was there for the Bush-Obama transition, like the work doesn't change at those levels. But at federal programs, it changes drastically. So I think it does depend which section you're and I, in. And I think the same thing is true at the state government level. I mean, it would never come up for any of us because we're political appointees, right? I would, none of us would have the jobs that we had in the event that the, the state was the op. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted the job, but I also never would have been offered the job. So it's not a dilemma that I would have faced. Um, so, but I think it's important to think about and pay attention. There was a question over here. Right. I'm also, when I was still so figuring things out, I guess my question, I'm interested in, in impact litigation. So I don't know, did you all consider working for other progressive organizations like ACLU um, and in your eyes, are there particular benefits to going the government route instead or particular challenges in either route? Yeah, yeah I, I very much did. Uh, and I was doing a somewhat broad job search when I was uh, thinking I, I wanted to leave the firm. And uh, the political climate was, I don't, it, it was a factor, a fairly big factor in wanting to leave D.C. and not considering federal government options. And so uh, I... Uh, so, yeah, and maybe in the future I'd be open to something like that as well. I think that 
there is um, it's a very different situation it's a very I, I actually even when you're working on a similar type of case, right? So there's a coalition of AGs who are suing on the census, and there's a coalition of um, nonprofit and, uh, and advocacy organizations, like bringing the same lawsuit. Um, but or family separation. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like literally the same lawsuit, but I think the experience is very different. Uh, and um, I haven't worked at a place like that, so I can't really, um, uh, I can't really say which I prefer, but I know because we work, you know, in partnership with them that um, – the, you don't have the types of political constraints that you have when you work for an elected politician who, you know, who needs to have the, to win an election to, to keep the job, uh, and so you know that you. So a, anyway, I I, th- I think that it's um, there. Uh, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to think I'll work for um, a state AG's office or another government. Uh, entity where I can do work I believe in and work for one of these organizations. Uh, I would, fr- if if I were back in law school, I would just intern in both and see what you like better, what environment you know suits you more. I think advocacy organizations are really helpful if you know you want to do impact litigation in a very particular focus. So like the ACLU Immigrants Rights Project or Prison Rights Project. Yeah, that's, that's If you good. want to do yeah. broad-based impact litigation, I think state AG's offices are a good place to try that out because you might be involved in family separation and travel ban and census and health care and opioids, like all in the same week. And so it can give you a sense of, is there a particular subject matter you're interested in or do you like just being a generalist? I think part of the reason the three of us are appellate lawyers is because <clears throat> we're all generalists. Like, you know, we're not good at anything. So we So this is a recurring theme of mine at this point in life, which is to say uh, conservatives are smarter than progressives in so many different respects. Uh, And one of the ways in which I think conservatives are smarter, because I was was thinking of this when Ryan was talking, it's interesting that on the right people do that. My first thought was that on the left people don't really move from government to advocacy organizations to law firms. That is just like not, you know, I feel like the, my first reaction to your question, which is a great question, is that it feels like on the left, people make decisions quite early in their career, whether they're going to work for progressive advocacy organizations, and then you are on the progressive advocacy organization track, and that is the kind of lawyer that you are. Um, and a lot of those people do amazingly important work, but I just feel like that's that. There's a. Sh- it feels to me like there's a sharper line there than there is on the right, where people move from conservative-leaning law firms to state government to working for the Chamber of Commerce's litigation department or Heritage's litigation. People do that with some. I mean, I won't say it's super common, but it's not un. It's not unheard of or bizarre for people to do that in the way that I don't know anybody on the sort of progressive left who does that. I think um, like Nina Pillard might be the only example I can think of. Right. Um, who was at Justice, is, was at ACLU at one point, now is a judge on the D.C. Circuit. Right. But it's very, it's very uncommon. Um, and I don't know really why that is other than, I mean, I guess the bugaboo is, I think the conservative legal movement has been much more successful at creating networks. I mean, one of the reasons I think that people don't make those jumps often is because I don't think that those parts of the community interface a lot. And I don't know if people know each other as well. I mean, like, literally, you can't get Lauren's job unless your friend emails you and says, maybe you'll be interested in this, right? That it doesn't even cross someone's mind um, to say, you know, the odds that one of my deputies, well, actually, one of them actually is pretty, one of them has done quite a bit of work with Planned Parenthood, but the the broader question for at large is the odds that the random deputy SG of Virginia would get an email saying they're looking for, like, a senior litigator at the ACLU, that just doesn't feel like these feel like different career paths that people go on, I think to the detriment in some ways. Um. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I think that's accurate and unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Gosh. 
we uh, if we don't have anyone, do, do you, did you just raise your hand or were you just moving your? No, no one. Okay, just some hand movement over there, T-Rex C movement. Um, so if there are no other questions there, and if you guys don't, I I don't know if you if something's popped into any of your minds. I have I have a few sort of lightning round questions okay. that I I think we should end on and sort of give folks something to to go away thinking about. It's it's almost sort of a homework assignment though. So sorry. <laughs> You'll have to do it, report back, et cetera. Um, there's, there's three things I, I am sort of interested in hearing from all of you, sort of just top of head, top of mind. Um, an attorney you admire and whose career you sort of look at as a, a good model for a way to sort of work through whatever, whatever it is they're doing. They could be totally private sector. They could be totally public. Someone who you think that we should be aware of. Um, then a case sort of percolating through the courts or a legal issue right now that you think is underappreciated, um, and then something you would like to see change, either in legal doctrine or in your office, the political world, anything like that. Wow. so hard. Those are tough questions. So, I mean, I think someone to, whose career to look up to or to admire, I think, would be Judge Pillard on, on the D.C. Circuit. Um, she started out clerking for the same district court judge that I did and has gone on to much greater things. Um, but she's someone who has, um, you know, kind of like Toby, been an academic, been a practitioner. You know, she's argued cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. She's now a federal uh, court of appeals judge. Um, and her husband is David Cole, who is the executive director of the ACLU. So if you're looking at, like, lawyer power couple people to emulate, like, <laughs> both of them have had just these incredible careers that um, end at the same time have managed to raise like two amazing kids like have a great dog like they have balanced <laughs> like the work life like doing incredible trailblazing things in both of their careers while also like being at home for dinner at night and I don't know how they do that um, but I think that those are, are two people to look at as role models in your career and also just like for life okay um, right I mean it's almost kind of declasse now to say this I don't know if I pronounce that right but I mean so Toby and I both uh, clerked for Justice Ginsburg and uh I think that, you know, one insight that you get from uh, following her career path is that she was always very open to opportunities, and she didn't actually, um, you know, graduate from law school thinking I'm going to be uh, bringing these Supreme Court cases to try to, um, you know, bring gender equality (laughs) under the law. But uh, when people called her and asked her uh, if she was interested in various things, including teaching at Rutgers, uh, uh, she, you know, spent a year in Sweden uh, writing a book on civil procedure because she, she had that opportunity. You know, she was open to working in a law firm. They didn't want her. Um, but uh, she was very, she wasn't, when you, it's, it's easy to reverse engineer someone's career who has been so successful and to think, you know, when they were uh, 30, they just knew, or 25 or whatever, they, they knew their path and how they were going to get there and there's this mystical being. But it's actually a story of someone who said yes a lot to, um, to things that seemed uh, not necessarily on the track. You know, if you're a tenured, a tenured professor at Columbia Law School, it's not actually um, normal to say, I'm going to start litigating these cases uh, and, and, and various other, you know, turns in the road. So um, that's a great question. Uh, someone you may know, uh, if you, but the answer to the trivia question of what person who is still practicing law has argued the most cases before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is a graduate of this law school named Ed Needler who has been in the federal government since the Carter administration, has been in the SG's office since Reagan's first term, um, has got to be more than 70 years old at this point. 
Um, so, so Paul Clement, who was the SG who hired me to be an assistant, once said that, it, that in his mind, if you were to think of the government lawyer and the, the prototypical who is the government lawyer in the dictionary, you would think of Ed Needler, um, who is somebody who – and I, you know, I've come to know him over the years. It's not that he does not have views and it's not that he doesn't have things that he believes, um, but is perhaps the greatest example I can think of of a person who has devoted themselves in a sort of unironic, serious, sustained way – to serving the interest of a client and that client being the government of the United States. And I don't think that Ed is like foolish or Pollyannish or thinks that the government is always perfect. But I think in a very sort of New Deal-y almost sort of way has this profoundly optimistic belief that on balance the federal government, even at times like this, that on balance the federal government is, does more good in the world than bad and that in the long run the federal government does more good in the world than bad and because the, the federal government is ultimately this sort of one entity that represents everyone in the United States it is critically important that that, that that client have top flight legal representation from people who do their absolute utmost on behalf of it um, and I, I have not talked to him since you know November 2016 I have suspicions but I don't know um, but I actually think there's something really actually quite heroic about that. Um, you know, he gets paid well, but I mean, for, the, for, for a person who's had the career who ha- he's had, um, gets paid laughably little money and works ludicrously long hours for no discernible direct reward, I think is actually an incredibly admirable thing, um, quite apart from what you may think of, of the current client at the current moment. But, but I think it's actually something that, that I really look up to and admire a lot. Those were all great answers. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna press you if you can if you can think of a case or an issue that's sort of developing now that we should be more attentive to. Um, I think one to follow is the concealed carry litigation. So, mm-hmm. like right now, there's a circuit split where the second, third, and fourth circuits have said that you can have regulations on concealed carry. The DC Circuit has struck it down. Um, it's currently in the Ninth Circuit in a case called um, Young, uh, and it's a, an issue that has had um, several short petitions filed, all of which have been um, denied. But I think with the increasing dissents from denials in Second Amendment litigation that we're getting from Gorsuch and Thomas, it's an issue now that Kavanaugh's on the court is going to get up there relatively soon. Um, and so I think it is an interesting interesting issue to monitor, and there's a lot going on in that space. Well, I was going to say, I, I did this ACA Supreme Court preview panel, and, you know, so I studied all the cases, and I didn't, uh, hadn't heard of your case yet, and the Virginia Uranium case, Now, that's what I was, that's <laughs> the first thing I thought, that that is this extraordinarily important local issue that I hadn't heard of yet. I don't know if you want to talk about that. So Virginia, uh, see, there's no way I can answer this in a way that I get the honest answer. So, so be honest. <laughs> If before you had walked into this room, if someone said to you, which state in the United States has by far the largest uranium reserves of any of these 50 United States, would any one of you have honestly guessed Virginia? Because you knew. You've read it. Okay. Like, guess. If you ask people to guess, they always – so the first answer is I was like Montana or Wyoming or one of those big, empty, arid western states. Um, the smart – the next smart move that people sometimes will go to is Alaska because they'll go, you know, Alaska's like – Alaska's half the size of the continental U.S. So if anybody ever asks you any natural resource question, your default guess should be, a, should be Alaska. Then the really crazy one is Hawaii. They're like, I don't know. Where does uranium come from? Maybe from magma and the Hawaiian islands are all like volcanoes. 
Like, you'd never get... So, yes, Virginia has uh, gigantic uranium reserves. Where in, does the uranium come from? Uh, well, so I've learned... I have this oral argument in, in two weeks, so I'm learning these questions. Um, <laughs> the best evidence is that all... The, the current theory is that all of the uranium on Earth comes from a single massive supernova 6.6 billion years ago. Um, that landed in Virginia? No, that, I mean, that's all... The <laughs> I, I have not actually been able to determine the answer to the question of why does Virginia have unusually high concentrations of uranium. Um, so it was discovered in the late 70s. It was l- largely a result, it, as a result of OPEC in the late 70s, there was a lot of attempts to find other energy resources. And so in the late 70s, they discovered massive uranium deposits in southern Virginia. Uh, the General Assembly of Virginia in 1982 imposed a moratorium on uranium mining that has been in place ever since. Uh, there is a lawsuit going on right now in which a company is arguing that Virginia's ban on uranium mining is preempted by the Federal Atomic Energy Act. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it, their arguments are really not about preemption generally. They're about this particular federal statute. So it, it's not clear that this case would, like, change preemption doctrine all that much. But, it, you know, it's, I'm trying not, I will say, as I've been doing the argument prep, try not to think about the fact that this case is worth $5 billion. Um, try not to think about that too much. It's, it's like <laughs> 80 miles north of where I live and <laughs> this where the biggest deposits are and just thinking, oh, does that water flow into <laughs> to Durham? Because I do not want uranium in my water. So Superpowers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, in terms of other legal issues, I would say, I mean, this is, especially now again with Kavanaugh uh, having been confirmed, um, the conservative legal movement is very serious about doing a number on federal administrative law. They are very, very serious about this. This is a major, major priority for them. And this would have potentially very, very significant consequences. Um, and consequences that may honestly not be, from a progressive standpoint, may not be felt immediately because in the short run, the administrative state is being run by conservatives. And so it's not on the balance clear that it would you know, invalidate a lot but it could have major, major consequences for the next time that there is a non-conservative federal administration in terms of the ability of federal agencies to do things, if depending on how far it goes. So maybe, maybe we'll just think about things you can change the next time. I don't want to hold you too no, long. Um, but uh, let's have a round of applause for everyone who hasn't left for class yet. Thank you all.